Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TMA Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled Imaging Patterns in Myelopathies and Myelitis. My name is Gigi DeFibri, and I will be moderating this podcast. The TMA is a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune disorders. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website for download and via iTunes. During the call, if you have any additional questions, you can send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. For today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Owen P. Flanagan. Dr. Flanagan is an associate professor of neurology and consultant in the departments of neurology and laboratory medicine and pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He completed his medical school training at University College Dublin in Ireland in 2005. He completed medical residency in Ireland and became a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland in 2008. He then pursued neurology residency at Mayo Clinic in Rochester and is board certified in neurology in the US. He completed fellowships in autoimmune neurology, multiple sclerosis, and behavioral neurology at Mayo Clinic. He received a master's degree in clinical and translational science at Mayo Clinic. He works in the autoimmune and multiple sclerosis neurology clinics and the neuroimmunology laboratory at the Mayo Clinic. His clinical expertise and research is focused on the diagnosis and management of autoimmune neurological disorders with an emphasis on inflammatory autoimmune spinal cord disorders and their mimics, including their MRI patterns. He also has an interest in the epidemiology of inflammatory demyelinating diseases of the central nervous system and autoimmune neurologic disorders. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Sure, thanks very much for the opportunity to speak today. Great, so um, to start, just kind of broadly, um, what is imaging and what is its role in di diagnosing myelitis and myelopathies? Well, I think when we think about spinal cord imaging, the most common modality that we use is MRI. And that's really where some of the interest I have in myelitis has uh, started. Um, the MRI can be very helpful in that when we see the pattern of abnormality on the MRI, it can often give us a clue to what the underlying cause is, be it an infection, be it inflammation, be it a problem of blood vessels or a stroke in the spinal cord. So really the MRI can be quite helpful. We often, when we do an MRI, we will often give contrast, um, uh, which we uh, term gadolinium contrast. And this can often reveal a certain pattern that can be suggestive of the underlying cause. So I think when a patient has a first episode of transverse myelitis, it's really important that the MRI be done with and without this gadolinium contrast. And what we've recognized is that some of the patterns uh, can lead us down the right track towards the correct diagnosis. Um, it's known that some people who have these uh, enhancement or this um, gadolinium deposition that we see on the MRI, that that's often associated with inflammation, but we can sometimes see it in non-inflammatory causes like vascular causes from a stroke or other causes. So, um, uh, but the pattern of abnormality can be quite helpful. Great, thank you. Um, and can you just talk a little bit about what the difference kind of between when we're talking about myelitis versus a, a myelopathy more generally? Yeah, so I think those terms are a little bit interchangeable. So when we think of the term myelitis, uh, it suggests inflammation. The itis at the end is something that we recognize in medicine to be inflammation. 
And myel, M-Y-E-L, is a term that we use for spinal cord. So myelitis means inflammation of the spinal cord. Myelopathy is probably a broader term, which just means disease of the spinal cord. And it doesn't mean necessarily that it's from uh, inflammation. It could be from, again, a stroke or some sort of other uh, process, a tumor or um, uh, lots of other different uh, processes that can affect the cord. So the itis refers to inflammation, and that's where it comes into transverse myelitis, the transverse being uh, across the spinal cord, so representing inflammation across the spinal cord. Okay, great. Thank you. And I know you talked a little bit about contrast, um, but can you just expand a bit on you know, what, what the purpose of contrast is and when someone should have it? And when someone is told that they have you know, contrast enhancement, what does this mean? Yes. Yeah, so again, the, the contrast we're talking about with MRI is gadolinium. With some other scans like CT scans, it's iodinated contrast. It's a little bit different. So if you have an allergy to a CT contrast, that doesn't mean that you will not be able to receive the gadolinium contrast. Uh, the utility of the contrast is that when it's present, it suggests that there might be some inflammation, such as we would see with an autoimmune process affecting the spinal cord or such as we might see with an infection affecting uh, the spinal cord. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I think it's useful to, to for patients to receive the contrast if they do have an episode of myelitis, as I mentioned earlier, because often the pattern can be helpful or the presence or absence of the contrast uh, being present can be helpful to suggest more inflammation than less likely inflammation if there's no evidence of any uh, contrast enhancement. So what often happens is patients, when they initially present, they, an MRI will be done and there'll be evidence of lots of contrast enhancement, which would mean active inflammation. And then maybe six months later, if they have a repeat MRI, that active inflammation may have gone away and there may no longer be any evidence of contrast enhancement. Okay, great. Thank you. And can you miss lesions with MRI if, if um, contrast is not used? I think so, yeah. yeah the, sometimes we will see some contrast enhancement of the covering of the spinal cord, which we call the meninges, or the outer layer of the spinal cord, and that can often be missed if you don't do, um, if you don't do an MRI with contrast, or small little lesions may not be seen. Um, so the, uh, the gadolinium can be helpful in that things that are missed on the initial sequences may be picked up, and also the pattern then can help suggest what the underlying cause is. Okay, and are there any health risks or side effects um, that are associated with gadolinium enhancement when you actually get contrast? Uh, well, the gadolinium contrast appears to be safe. Um, there's no patients that I'm aware of that have ever developed uh, confirmed symptoms from gadolinium. Now, we know that when patients get multiple MRIs, 10, 20 MRIs over time, sometimes we can see some deposition of the gadolinium metal within the brain, but it's never been shown to cause any symptoms in anybody. And, you know, particularly in a patient who has a spinal cord problem where there's a lot of risk to their function of their walking and their urinating and, and lots of different symptoms, it's quite a serious condition. It's really important that patients do get the contrast initially because it really can help the doctors determine what the underlying cause is. So um, the FDA is 
interested in this gadolinium and why there may be some deposition in people who have 10, 20, 30 MRI scans, but really it's never been shown to cause any symptoms. And for now, we still recommend patients receive it, particularly at the initial episode. Uh, when you're getting uh, multiple MRIs over time, such as a patient who has MS, then sometimes in uh, future MRIs, you may just use non-contrast and not use the contrast. But when you're first present with a spinal cord problem, I think it's really critical to get the contrast, yeah. Okay, great. And then what about if you're, um, if for example, you've been diagnosed with something like idiopathic transverse myelitis, um, but then you later go on to have, you know, new or worsening symptoms. Would an MRI with contrast be something that would be suggested or um, without contrast? And I, I think, yeah, I think we would suggest contrast because uh, in some patients like that, you know, the presence of contrast enhancement after that prior inflammation is gone could suggest a new inflammatory area and might again help us understand the diagnosis. But, you know, I think uh, with some of these myelitis cases, um, if there's not new symptoms, you know, then and there's some monitoring going on where there's been lots of monitoring for many years. In some of those cases, uh, for those later MRIs, you may not need the contrast. But if there's concern for recurrence or concern for new symptoms, I think the contrast is helpful. Great, thanks. Um, and we, we get a lot of questions um, from our community about, um, you know, how the, these imaging results are interpreted or, you know, how they're described um, by their physicians. Um, so people, you know, have questions about what the difference between a lesion or a scar or demyelination um, is when seen on MRI. Can you explain a little bit about these terms or um, whether they're interchangeable or how, how they relate to one another? Sure. So I think when we look at a, an MRI of the spinal cord, uh, we're looking inside the spinal cord and we're looking for evidence of abnormality. So that the spinal cord looks abnormal. And that's usually termed a lesion or something present in the spinal cord that should not be there. Um, I suppose that could be used interchangeably with a scar. Um, the myelination is a little bit dif difficult because it's difficult, and I know this is a, a question that may come up later, but it's difficult to image the myelin for sure. So we often can just tell from what we know about how a lesion looks, whether it's likely to be demyelinating, such as MS or another disorder where the myelin, which is the covering of the nerves, has come off the nerve surface. But it's quite difficult for us to tell. That's something that really needs to be looked at under the microscope. But I think a lesion, a scar is interchangeable. You know, I will mention that uh, we are interested in looking at how the lesions uh, change over time. So if, if someone has an initial episode, say, of transverse myelitis and there's a large abnormality within the spinal cord, in some patients, that abnormality goes away completely. So it doesn't really leave a scar. While with, an, for example, multiple sclerosis, it often does lead, a scar, lead to a scar. And those patients are more likely to have problems down the line from those lesions. So it's an area of active interest that something that I'm interested in and others are interested in, in terms of if the lesion does leave a scar, is that going to be more of a problem down the line? Okay. And then, you know, so in relation to MRIs, um, you know, what, what does the word Tesla mean? Um, should someone have an MRI with a certain Tesla? The Tesla is uh, related to the magnet strength, and I'm not a physicist, but in general, I think a lot of the MRIs of the spinal cord are done with 1.5 Tesla. Uh, for the brain MRI, we found that 3 Tesla may be a little bit better, but I don't think that's been shown within the spinal cord. 
And, you know, now on a research basis, we're getting stronger magnets, which give us a bit of a better picture. But really for the spinal cord, there is um, more difficulties in imaging the spinal cord because you have lots of the other apparatus that you have to go through, like movement artifacts from breathing or the heart is beating. When you image the brain, it's a lot easier. There's a lot less of those things that can interfere with the magnet. So I think in general, if you have a 1.5 Tesla magnet, which is probably pretty typical, that is, you know, would be reasonable to look at the MRI. There are other things like when patients are in the MRI, if they can stay as still as they can, that can improve the quality of the image. So there are other things that can also help ensure that the quality of the image is good. Okay, great. Thank you. And then uh, we did get a question about what diffusion tensor imaging is and its potential role in, in diagnosis. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that the diffusion tensor imaging, and again, I'm not an expert on this, but it's more of a research tool, and it looks at some of the tracks that go up and down. So, you know, the tracks within the spinal cord are like cables that go up and down, and you can image them more closely with diffusion tensor imaging and see which tracks are affected and how that suggests what the underlying cause would be. But this is not something that's usually used in the clinical setting. So in a patient who comes into the hospital, we generally use the more routine MRI sequences and diffusion tensor imaging is something on a research basis that helps us understand what the disease process is. And that might give us more insight into why things happen, what treatments might work, how we can better understand uh, patients who get inflammation within the spinal cord. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, and then do, do different forms of myelitis, for example, you know, transverse myelitis or um, myelitis associated with um, neuromyelitis optica or the MOG antibody, you know, appear different on imaging? They do. There are important differences. So some of these terms overlap. So I think it can be difficult for patients and even for doctors to follow these. Um, the term transverse myelitis is a syndrome, which means that there are lots of different causes. Just like a patient who has chest pain and comes in, it can be from their heart or it can be from their lung if they have a pneumonia or their heart if they have a heart attack. Similarly, transverse myelitis can be from lots of causes. So it can be from an infection, it can be from an antibody. And what we've looked at is with some of the antibodies, there's one called MOG, as you mentioned, the pattern can uh, uh, be a little bit different than we see with another cause like MS. So, for example, with the MOG antibody disease, we see more of a central lesion involving the middle part of the spinal cord, while with MS, the, the areas of abnormality are more often in the periphery of the spinal cord, in the outside, and they often extend over less of the spinal cord. So, we often use three vertebral segments. So, in your back, you have vertebrae, and um, uh, we determine the length of the lesion. And we know that if a lesion is longer than three vertebral segments of your back, then that suggests it's not from MS and it's from one of these other causes. And that would be one of the antibodies would be MOG antibody. Another one would be the aquaporin-4 antibody that's been associated with neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder. And again, ADEM uh, is more of a clinical syndrome. So that, um, you know, Patients with ADEM can have one of these different antibodies. They can have the MOG antibody or the aquaporin-4 antibody. So it gets a little bit confusing, but I think we can distinguish based on the different diseases that we know that cause transverse myelitis. So MS, aquaporin-4 antibody, NMO spectrum disorder, MOG antibody, 
And then the acute flaccid myelitis can overlap a little bit with the MOG antibodies. So sometimes there can be some overlapping features there. They both involve the central gray matter of the spinal cord and sometimes can look similarly. So I think if you have a patient with the acute flaccid myelitis that's been associated with enterovirus, then you want to consider testing for the MOG antibody in particular because the imaging can look quite similar. Okay, that's a, that's a great point. And then what about between these kind of inflammatory conditions rather than vascular causes um, of uh, spinal cord damage? Are there any differences that show up in, in imaging? It, definitely there are. It, there's a special type of sequence that you can use to look for a spinal cord stroke. It's called diffusion-weighted diffusion imaging. And that can be useful in the acute setting because that usually shows abnormalities of a stroke. Uh, we use it often in the brain. It's not as easy to do in the spinal cord, but it can be done and can be helpful. And sometimes also uh, for other vascular causes, you can see swollen veins within the spinal cord or right next to the spinal cord that suggests that there's a problem with the arteries and veins, such as in what we call a dural AV fistula. So sometimes you can see abnormalities there, or sometimes the pattern of gadolinium enhancement. Dr. Nicholas Zaleski, who's been on this uh, podcast before, had reported a pattern where there was a missing piece of that enhancement within the lesion that can be suggestive of a fistula. So there are important differences, but there are also overlapping features. So we find many patients who have received a diagnosis of transverse myelitis, it turns out that they do have a vascular cause. They do have a either a spinal cord stroke or they may have an abnormality of the arteries and veins. And sometimes because of the presence of this enhancement with the gadolinium, the doctors get confused and think it's more of, a, of an inflammatory cause. So what I would say is that in patients who present with these symptoms that they really want to think about um, uh, uh, these other types of causes that can affect the spinal cord because there are many overlapping features and it can be quite difficult to distinguish them. Okay, great. Thank you. And then can you tell from imaging, I know you talked a little bit about this, um, but how likely it might be for someone with uh, who is diagnosed with transverse myelitis to go on to develop something like multiple sclerosis? Yeah, I think we can get a good sense. You know, the, the lesions in MS on the MRI generally, as I said, are short, so they don't extend over a long part of the spinal cord, only over a short segment, less than three vertebral segments. And they're often in the periphery of the cord, which means they're in the outside rather than in the center. And if you have multiple of these short peripheral lesions in the spinal cord, that is highly suggestive of multiple sclerosis and predicts a higher likelihood of going on to develop uh, MS. If you just have one short lesion, then it's difficult. And if there's no lesions in the brain or elsewhere, then we have to follow those patients. Sometimes we'll repeat the MRI down the line. We'll follow them and see if they develop a new episode that confirms MS. So in some cases, uh, it's hard for us to predict. And then we have to follow the patient over time. Okay. Um, and then can imaging appear normal in these conditions? Um, so if someone you know presents in... Uh, if their physician is thinking it's maybe transverse myelitis, can the MRIs be normal and then um, they still be diagnosed with transverse myelitis or one of these other conditions? Uh, yes, I think it can be. Um, you know, that would that would raise a bit of a red flag for a couple of things. One is in the very early stages of a spinal cord stroke or spinal cord infarct, the MRI can be completely normal. And then if you repeat it, 
many days or a week later, you may see the abnormality come up. So that's one situation where the MRI may be normal, that is a mimic of transverse myelitis or inflammation, but is actually a stroke within the spinal cord. Other times, if you image the patient too early, so say if the patient has their symptoms and you image them a half an hour or an hour after their symptoms, the lesion may not have fully developed yet. Or if you image them late, you know, a few months after they had the episode, then the lesion may have resolved completely and you may not see it. So it depends a little bit on the timing also. And, and also you really want to look out for a spinal cord stroke if the initial MRI is normal. If the MRI is completely normal, then, you know, you always want to think, and, and if you do a repeat MRI and it's still normal, then you want to think, are we sure this is myelitis or is there a problem elsewhere? For example, in the nerves, there's other diseases like Guillain-Barre syndrome, where it affects the nerves and not the spinal cord, but it can present similarly. Or is there other issues going on that are not neurologic related per se? Okay. Um, and then who reads or, you know, interprets uh, the imaging from an MRI? And what happens um, when someone's doctors maybe disagree about the imaging results? Okay. Well, I think in general, um, the, there's a radiologist. And the, at Mayo Clinic, we have neuroradiologists who are experts in neurologic disease only. In other places, it may be a general radiologist. A lot of times, MS doctors will read their own MRI. And this is because we have experience with, you know, we see lots and lots of patients with MS and with related conditions, transverse myelitis and other disorders. So a lot of times we'll look at our own MRI. And what I encourage all our neurologists out there to do is to look at the MRI themselves and look for these different patterns. Because we've reported that the pattern of abnormality can be quite suggestive of the underlying cause. And, um, you know, if you look uh, yourself, uh, the radiologist may not be aware of some of these patterns, but as an MS physician, you may be more aware and more experienced than the radiologist. So I think we often encourage our doctors, neurologists to look at the MRI themselves. And that can happen if the radiologist is not experienced, then sometimes the neurologist can say to the radiologist, well, you know, this looks to me like it might be aquaporin-4 antibody or MOG antibody as a cause. And a lot of times, you know, we'll discuss back and forth and usually reach a consensus about what we think. So in cases where, you know, where our radiologist says they think it's one thing and I disagree a little bit, I'll talk to them and sometimes they'll make a change in their report to reflect what I said. Or other times they'll they'll explain to me what they meant and I'll agree with them and I'll say, oh yeah, that was just an artifact, for example, from movement and it wasn't really an abnormality. So usually that's a time for the doctor and the, the neurologist and the radiologist to chat and kind of go over things and try and reach a consensus. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then so when someone has been diagnosed uh, with one of these conditions, are there any guidelines uh, for how often someone should get an MRI after their diagnosis? So I think it depends a little bit on the underlying cause. So if a cause was found, for example, the MOG antibody, the aquaporin-4 antibody, then oftentimes with those patients, we only image them when they have a problem. So we will, if they've found a definitive cause, everything fits well, then if they develop a new episode, then that will be a time where we would repeat the MRI, develop new clinical symptoms. On the other hand, we know that with patients who have MS, for example, that they can get new lesions even if they don't have symptoms. And in that situation, we will sometimes monitor the MRI to see if they're getting lots of new uh, lesions. And if they are, then maybe that suggests that the medication they're on is not working. 
if there is no cause found, then probably routine uh, repeat imaging is helpful. So, for example, if a patient develops some symptoms, you don't know the cause, repeating an image in three to six months can be helpful because if the inflammation has all gone away or the changes are all gone away, that might suggest it was a one-off inflammation such as a virus or an antibody. While if things are getting worse over time, that might suggest, is this something else? Could this be a tumor? Could it be sarcoidosis? Could it be some sort of other condition that you know we weren't able to pick up right away, but now we're able to get a better handle on things? So I think repeating imaging when you don't know is helpful. And also sometimes patients who have an initial episode of transverse myelitis will go on to develop MS. And if you repeat the imaging down the line, you may see new lesions within the brain or within the spinal cord that help you make that diagnosis. Because I think once you make the diagnosis, it can be very helpful for patients to know what the cause is and then you know what you're treating and know how to approach the patient. So it depends a little bit on the underlying cause and that can guide you about, about the repeat imaging. Okay, great, thank you. Um, and so for someone with you know, idiopathic transverse myelitis or um, you know, what they think is maybe a, a monophasic uh, situation, is there any benefit to getting routine imaging done? And if so, how often would this be the case? Would it be once a year, every other year? Yeah, I, I think if, um, if so, if, um, if there is a concern that this might develop into MS, for example, it's a short lesion, you know, or there's some changes called oligoclonal bands in the spinal fluid, then repeating an image in six months or a year of the spinal cord in the brain might be useful to see if you're developing new lesions that can confirm uh, that diagnosis. If, you know, there's no cause found and it really doesn't look like MS and it looks like it might have been a virus or a one-off inflammation and all the tests are negative, then repeating the imaging on a routine basis may not make much difference because if you're not developing new symptoms, it's unlikely that there'll be new changes on the MRI and that might not be uh, that beneficial for patients. Okay. Um, and then how does imaging relate to prognosis? So does the way someone's um, spinal cord looks on imaging relate at all to how they maybe function in their day-to-day -day life? I'm not sure how well that has been studied, but I do know that sometimes if we see a lot of what we call thinning in the spinal cord, it's called atrophy, which means that the spinal cord shows a lot of damage. That We usually see that where people have had more severe episodes. So the MRI tends to look similar to what the patient has. Um, although in some diseases like sarcoidosis, the MRI often looks very, very nasty, but the patient is not quite as bad. So sometimes the mismatch between what the clinic, what the patient looks like and what the spinal MRI looks like can be a clue to the uh, uh, diagnosis. The other thing to mention is that some people who have a myelitis episode, if it's the first episode of MS, those patients can go on to develop a, what we call a secondary progressive course. So sometimes in those cases, that spinal cord lesion may contribute to some progressive uh, uh, disease, and we've reported on some of that in some patients where they have one lesion that then progresses over time, and there might be a question about this later, where the patient progresses from that lesion, and a lot of those end up being multiple sclerosis as the underlying cause. Okay, um, and so we did talk a little bit about, you know, what to do if someone uh, was diagnosed with one of these conditions and then had a worsening of symptoms, but I have a specific um, question from someone in our community. Um, so 23 years after their original diagnosis of transverse myelitis, 
they now have what their um, GP says appears to be further deterioration in their condition. So they've lost all power in their right leg where they previously had some strength. Um, sure. What, what, what would be recommended you know, in, this, in a situation like this in terms of imaging or um, getting to a, a diagnosis? So I think at that stage, then, you're really going to be concerned about that initial episode being an episode of MS, and now the patient has got a secondary progressive cause. There is a form of MS that some people use a term, it's called single attack progressive MS, which means patients just have one episode, and then from that lesion, uh, from that scar in the spinal cord, they develop progression from that lesion, and it results in worsening over time. So I think now that patient should probably undergo a repeat MRI of the head, the cervical, and the thoracic spine with and without contrast to see if there are other lesions suggestive of MS, and the spinal fluid may also be helpful to see if there's evidence of oligoclonal bands, to see if this could be something uh, along the realms of secondary progressive MS. And that's important because recently we have now discovered that there are new medications available for some of the progressive forms of MS. So in the past, we didn't have medications for that. But now that we do, it would definitely be worth kind of trying to figure out that further. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, and so uh, another question came in. Uh, this person was diagnosed with TM this past uh, December. And their subsequent MRI done in April showed a persistent cord signal abnormality with no improvement and increase in the extent of cord involvement, as well as slight enhancement along the right edge of the cord not seen yeah. previously. Um, is this no, normal? No further treatment has been offered to them, but they do have an, a repeat MRI booked for October. So this would raise a red flag to me. This would say to me, because... Um, you know, the previous diagnostic criteria for transverse myelitis state that the patients should not worsen past 21 days. And similarly, the MRI should not get worse over time. Now, it's not uncommon for a scar to be left within the spinal cord, so the, the imaging may not resolve completely. But if the imaging is getting bigger and there is more enhancement or ongoing enhancement many months after the episode, with MS and with many of the other dis uh, inflammation disorders, the enhancement will be gone away within three months. Uh, almost 98% will be gone. So if you have persistent inflammation on your MRI many months later, that's a situation where you need to reconsider what the diagnosis is. Is this really transverse myelitis? Because this would not fit well. And at that situation, you want to consider, could this be something like sarcoidosis, which can cause this slow, gradual progression over time? Could this also be from compression of the spinal cord from our discs, from arthritis in the neck that can sometimes cause this more progressive uh, form over time that can sometimes be associated with some mild inflammation that doctors mistake for transverse myelitis when it's actually due to the degenerative disc disease? Or could it be something else, some other um, a type of disorder, a vascular disorder like a dural AV fistula would be another thing we would think about or less likely some sort of tumor. I think that would be a little bit less likely because they're quite uncommon. But really, I, that would be a, a point where I might seek an expert opinion at a territory referral center who deals with a lot of transverse myelitis, like Mayo Clinic or other uh, territory referral centers around the country where they have you know, um, dedicated clinics to see if there might be a different cause, yeah. Okay, great, thank you. Um, so another question we got is uh, this uh, person's daughter has MOG antibody-associated disease, 
and has continued to test positive for almost three years uh, despite preventive treatment. Um, the question is, is it possible that MOG could be a progressive illness like with MS? Um, they ask this because on several occasions, their daughter seems to be having a relapse, but no new inflammation has been shown on MRI. And this is both with and without contrast. Um, you know, okay. and they've also, she's also had issues with um, vision, uh, loss of peripheral vision. Um, so yeah, if you could comment on that. Yeah. So, you know, with the, with the MOG antibody disease, there has not been really uh, uh, any cases or one or two cases where they had progressive disease, this secondary progressive form that we see with MS. So we really think that that's not something, although it's not been fully well studied yet because uh, this is a new disease, but we really feel that this is not something that patients tend to get. Now, on the contrary, in patients who have had transverse myelitis associated with the MOG antibody, sometimes we can see worsening if patients get a viral illness. For example, if they get the flu or if they get some other virus that is common in children, this spinal cord can be a weak point for them and some of the symptoms can come back. And in that situation, the MRI, repeat MRI can be normal. So, you know, I, I would be concerned about something like that. You know, in general, with MOG antibody disease, at least in my experience, when they do have a relapse, which they can have more of a relapse, they can go on to develop a relapse, the MRI will usually show changes that uh, are um, uh, confirmed. Now, also, it depends on the quality of the MRI. Was the patient able to stay still uh, during the MRI, et cetera? Um, but that's something, you know, uh, I um, uh, we usually see. Now, with MOG antibody disease, the antibody may remain present and that predicts an increased risk of relapse, but it doesn't mean that they're guaranteed to have a relapse. So uh, we do see some patients where the antibody is still there and we tend to treat them based on their clinical symptoms um, rather than treat um, the antibody. So we, we look and see if they have developed new episodes. Um, and in regard, it would be hard to for me to comment on the vision, but we know that patients with MOG antibody optic neuritis is very common, the most common uh, manifestation. So it would be worthwhile them seeing a neuro-ophthalmologist to see if they've been developing episodes of optic neuritis too. Okay, great. That makes sense. Um, so another question is that they, this person is five years out from their TM diagnosis. If they were to have an MRI of their spine now, would there be evidence of damage, you know, prior damage to the cord? Um, and if so, how would this differentiate? Uh, from an acute attack. I know we talked a little bit about this, um, but if you can yeah, comment. Yeah, no, I think um, uh, uh, to reiterate that is fine. So it depends a little bit on the cause. So if the cause, uh, for example, was aquaporin-4 antibodies or MOG antibodies, they oftentimes, the, the large lesion that you see with lots of inflammation initially and lots of contrast enhancement, when you do the repeat imaging, the lesion will often be much smaller or may even be gone away. And the contrast enhancement that tends to come with the active inflammation will often be gone away. And similarly, if it's an MS lesion, the lesion may be big initially with the contrast enhancement and then may go away. But the MS lesion seems to be more likely to leave a scar uh, within the cord. So it'll look a little bit different. And sometimes there can be some thinning of the spinal cord in that area left over so that in the acute situation, the lesion is swollen from all of the active inflammation. And then later on, there's a little bit of thinning in the spinal cord um, as a residua of uh, that inflammation. Okay. Um, and then how often do you see complete resolution of lesions in uh, MOG-associated myelitis after treatment? 
So that's an excellent question, and that's actually our latest research project. We're looking to see how commonly, I would say probably in our preliminary experience, probably uh, 60 to 70% resolve, um, and then the remainder, the lesions are usually much decreased in size, and sometimes there's a little bit of signal abnormality there, but that's certainly an area of active research of ours at the moment. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, and then how can a TM caused by um, Sojourn syndrome be differentiated from TM caused by MS? Is there a, a way to tell that? Well, I think when you have a patient with Sjogren's syndrome and they develop transverse myelitis, you have to consider testing for aquaporin-4 antibodies in the blood because Sjogren's syndrome and neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder associated with this aquaporin-4 antibody often coexist. So, um, so in a patient who has that, we usually recommend they're tested for the aquaporin-4 antibody, and many of those patients end up being positive. And then it's the aquaporin-4 antibody that's causing their syndrome. So we know, similarly, if we think about patients who have autoimmune disease in general, a patient who gets type 1 diabetes is more likely to have thyroid problems. But that's not their diabetes attacking their thyroid, it's two separate diseases that tend to run together. So that's one thing. And then, you know, with the, if it is the aquaporin-4 antibody positive uh, with Sjogren's, the lesions tend to be longer. So they will extend more than that three vertebral segments. When you look on your MRI, your, your radiologist shows you the picture, you'll see your vertebrae, you'll have multiple uh, bony vertebrae in your back. And if it extends longer than three of those vertebrae, that's very suggestive of this aquaporin-4 antibody disease. And definitely, they should be tested for that if they have Sjogren's syndrome. If the antibody is negative, then we have seen cases where Sjogren's syndrome is associated with uh, myelitis. But I think testing for the antibody would be most important, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, and then are there any specific considerations when a child is getting an MRI as opposed to an adult? Uh, there are, you know, I think it can be more difficult for a child to stay still in the MRI. So sometimes we need to uh, put them under anesthesia, particularly if they're young. Um, otherwise, you know, children can also receive contrast. So I don't think that would be a big issue. Um, sometimes um, seeing abnormalities within the brain, you know, in very young children, there can be changes of myelin development as the myelin is growing. Um, uh, that need to be differentiated uh, from, you know, abnormalities of MS or other things. So I think they're probably the major differences, yeah. Okay, and I know at the beginning you mentioned about imaging myelin, um, but if we can talk a little bit more in detail about that. Um, is there a way to image myelin or is it too small or, or what are the reasons that we might not be able to image myelin? Yeah, I think it's difficult for us to see myelin specifically. You know, it's quite small and it's kind of, it covers all these, uh, you know, uh, what we think of as these axons or electrical cables. So it's like the uh, copper insulation on your wires. And when you have multiple, you know, you're talking about millions of wires, all with each with their own insulation within the spinal cord, it's hard to see individual myelin. So that's something we have to see under the microscope. But in saying that, you know, we have such good experience with all these diseases that, you know, if I see a spinal cord full of MS lesions, I can recognize that no problem because it's kind of a pattern recognition. And we know from our experience that when we see that pattern, that that's going to be demyelination on the MRI and that's going to be MS. So I think with experience, um, uh, we can often 
predict that that's likely to be demyelination, but you can only really see it under the microscope when you stain it with certain stains under the microscope. And we don't like to do biopsies of the spinal cord because the spinal cord is kind of prime real estate there and any sort of taking any tissue from there could result in paralysis and, and make things worse. So we generally don't do any spinal cord biopsies, but that's the way um, uh, we would see it. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, and uh, if you could talk a little bit about maybe what the future of imaging looks like, are there any improvements that uh, you know of that might be coming in the near future or, or you know, what, what the future holds kind of for imaging? Yeah, uh, you know, I think imaging has improved a lot, even over the last, um, you know, 20 years um, or 30 years since I suppose MRI has been around. You know, the the discovery of MRI was a huge, uh, uh, huge benefit for all of us in the field of MS and transverse myelitis and really allowed us to see all these lesions. And what we've noticed over time is that the quality of the imaging is improving such that we can recognize different patterns that go with different diseases. While previously the imaging quality was poor, it's just like um, the imaging quality in your TV with high definition and things like that, we can see things much clearer, which gives us a better sense of what the diagnosis uh, is. In terms of the future, you know, I think some of these patterns, some of these um, imaging techniques that we mentioned earlier, the diffusion tensor imaging, and uh, we're getting better at we're getting better in the brain at looking at cortical lesions within MS and some of those other diseases where previously they were difficult to see on um, uh, the MRI. So I think uh, technology is improving uh, all the time, and and I think the improved quality of MRI over time has really helped us in understanding the the diagnosis in these cases. Okay, thank you. Um, and we just got a question um, asking about, you know, why is it that in MOG-associated TM, or, uh, you know, I would also say in, in NMOSD, uh, why the lesion is can be so extensive or, or so long? Yeah, we don't, we don't really know um, exactly why that happens. Um, we know that there are certain regions that seem to be a bit more predisposed, and we're not sure if that's related to, you know, with the MOG, uh, um, for example, it's a bit unusual in that the gray matter seems to be a little bit more involved while the white matter, where a lot of the covering of the nerve, the myelin is located, tends to be uh, less affected. So uh, it's something we don't really understand well at the moment, but what we do know is that from our experience, when we look at these cases, that we know it can help us in the diagnosis. So where it's really useful is um, you know, when a patient has their first episode, is it a long or is it a short lesion? What is the pattern of enhancement? How can that help tell what the underlying cause is? But in terms of why that happens, we're less certain. And, you know, uh, we, we know a little bit more about the Acroporin-4 antibody be, and the MOG antibody, I suppose, because we know that those antibodies are specific targets and in some cases cause the disease. With MS, we know even less because we don't know the exact cause. So, there's plenty more for us to learn over time, I think. Okay, thank you. Um, and if someone has been diagnosed with a longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis, so you know more than three um, vertebral segments, um, does that uh, kind of point you towards thinking it might be something like NMO, um, or does that happen yeah. also in you know tr idiopathic transverse myelitis? And so what I would say is that that would point one towards testing for the acroporin 4 antibody and looking for this NMO spectrum disorder. With MS, the lesions are very rarely long, so they're almost always um, uh, short. So it's very helpful to distinguish from MS. 
But there are lots of other things that can cause long lesions, lots of other causes of transverse myelitis, including idiopathic transverse myelitis, sarcoidosis, uh, MOG antibody disease. So there's a whole range of different disorders that can cause long lesions. So what it does is it helps the doctors kind of narrow the diagnosis away a bit from MS and more towards some of these other causes. But there's lots of different causes of long lesions. So if they test for the acroporin 4 antibody and it's negative, then what sometimes we see is the doctor says, well, the antibody is negative, but it's still this NMO spectrum disorder. But I would warn people to be careful in that situation. You need to look for other things because there's lots of things that can cause long lesions. So it's important to do lots and lots of, lots of testing in that situation if the antibody comes back negative for the acroporin 4, yeah. Great, thank you. Um, and can imaging be used to tell if, it, if an acute treatment is working or is imaging not really used for that purpose? Uh, I think so, yeah. You know, we will often do a repeat MRI. Sometimes we'll treat patients with steroids or plasma exchange. And then when we do a follow-up MRI, we often do it to see, you know, uh, is, is the patient getting better? For example, if people are very uh, severely paralyzed, and sometimes it can tell us that the treatment has worked, or it can tell us that, listen, we're we're barking up the wrong tree, and in fact, the MRI looks worse, and, you know, this treatment is not working. Maybe we need to reconsider, was this a spinal cord stroke? Is it not inflammation? So repeating the MRI can be useful in the early stages in that situation, yeah. Great, thank you. And then is there any research being done using imaging, you know, whether it's at Mayo Clinic or elsewhere that you know about? I think so. You know, there's, there's lots of people looking at the stronger magnets. So the seven Tesla magnet is something that they're looking at more in the brain than the spinal cord. Um, and, um, you know, we're also looking at, you know, we've collected a lot of patients over time. So we're looking at the patients that we do have with MOG antibody and trying to see what are the differences from MS? How can we differentiate the brain MRI of a patient with acroporin 4 antibodies from MOG antibodies from MS? And this is something we're always trying to do so we can help doctors who see these patients to recognize which disease it's likely to be. So there's always, uh, there's lots of research going on. We're looking at lots of the patients who've already had MRIs, and then we're also following some patients who have had MRIs and seeing what happens to them over time. How do those MRIs change? So I think there's lots of lots happening in the field in that area. And then we have new techniques like the diffusion tensor imaging that we're looking at in terms of um, uh, learning more about those specific tracts. Yeah. Great, thank you so much. Um, and so, you know, we are towards the end of our questions. Was there anything, um, you know, that you feel like we didn't cover that we should talk about about imaging and, and its role? No, you know, what I would say is that it, for patients out there who have had a diagnosis of transverse myelitis that, you know, uh, and there's no cause found that they should talk to their doctor, get their doctor to look back at the MRI, their neurologist, and say, you know, it does it have a pattern suggestive of some other disease? Can we figure this out? Because when when we did a study at Mayo Clinic, we looked at patients who were referred with uh, transverse myelitis of unknown cause. And in about 70% of those patients, we were able to figure out the exact cause. So I think, you know, and the same would be true at other myelopathy centers. So I think the message out there to patients is if you have a transverse myelitis and they don't know the cause, you know, it's worth um, uh, going back to your neurologist, having them relook at the MRI. Is there a cause that can be found, or is there ongoing active inflammation? And if, if they can't find a cause, then maybe you know they should refer you to an expert center. And there's many expert centers, MS centers, or transverse myelitis clinics around the country that they could go to to try and figure uh, figure that out. So that would be my kind of message to patients out there who 
have transverse myelitis of uncertain cause that, you know, do go back to your neurologist and do seek out an opinion to see because oftentimes we can find the cause. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. I, you know, we, we covered a lot and answered a lot of questions. So I really do appreciate your time um, and, you know, being here to answer these questions from our community. We really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank, thanks for the opportunity. And, and it's great to be able to uh, talk to the patients out there who have this unfortunate disease. And um, we learn so much from our patients. So we're grateful to them all for sharing their cases and the patients we get to see in our clinic. So thanks great. very much thank to them. Thank you so much. Bye.